welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We pray for those who were at the homeless encampment, Lord. We just pray that you would give us more and more abilities to to share your love with them. Um, We just thank you so much that you have given this small church um, all kinds of ways to impact the community. I just thank you for our deacons, Lord, and their just commitment and desire to lead us in acts of service, as your word says there to do. We just thank you for the fact that they do that with zeal, and we thank you for all the people that have come around to help them. Um, Lord, this morning we also want to pray for uh, Holly in Cambodia as she's uh, ministering there amongst women who are um, at risk of sex trafficking, we look, pray, Lord, that you would be blessing her. We pray for Lorian, who's in the Middle East right now, um, long term. We pray that you would be blessing her. We pray for both these ladies when they wake up Sunday morning, whether that already happened or it's about to happen, I don't know. I, I pray, Lord, that you would give them a special sense of your presence and love. We pray, Lord, that they would know that, uh, that we love them sincerely and deeply. And we pray, Lord, that they would have a clear sense for that. Make us faithful to continue to support the work that they're doing there, Lord. And Lord, as we open your word, uh, so often I come to this place at this time of the week and I go and open my notes and I just think, you know, what is this for so many, as Peter said about the fish and the bread, Lord, but we know that you can multiply this. You can, you can make what's here be enough and more than enough for everybody that's here. And so we pray, Lord, that you would feed your people, you'd feed them with exactly what they need, that it'd be a word from you, a word from heaven, It wouldn't be the words of a man or thoughts of a man, but it would be your very words, we pray. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you'd be exalted. We pray that you'd be lifted up. We pray that you'd be the treasure of your people, the desire of our hearts. And Lord, as as Charles Wesley wrote, we pray, Lord, come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Lord, that's what we want this morning, Lord. Give us a love and an a, um, enjoyment of you, Lord. Be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are. We're in First Peter. We're in an in-depth series, and we know that because we're still in chapter 1. And, uh, and, the, and the series is called Keep Going. And uh, we have some really cool cards for that. They're on the back table there. Um, to hand out to people, but we're looking at verses, specifically verses 22 of uh, chapter 1 through verse 1 of chapter 2. So 1, 22 through 2, 1. And what we're looking at here specifically is that we're to keep going in love for one another. That's specifically what's going on here. Do you see that there's only one command in this passage? Let me read it for you again. It's in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. There's one command in this passage. Do you guys see what it is? There's one command in our section here, and it's in verse 22. 
And the command is to love. It says, love one another from a, from a, a, earnestly from a pure heart. That's the one command in this passage. And, and it relates actually to last week. Last week's command that we looked at was, uh, be holy in all your conduct. And this command to love relates to that command of holiness because love is what holiness looks like. Love is what holiness looks like practically. If you look at verse 2, there's three words in there that point to holiness. You see, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth and from a pure heart. You see three links there to holiness. And so um, there is no progress in holiness without progress in love. Okay, We can't get more holy and not get more loving. They go together. Specifically in this passage, it's talking about love for other Christians. Do you see that in verse 22? There's two indications of that. One is he calls it brotherly love. Whenever he talks about brotherly love, he's talking about love between um, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he also says in verse 22, one another. Every time he talks about loving one another, the one another's are always between Christians. And so this is love for your sisters and brothers. When you were born again, you received God as your father. He adopted you. And when he adopted you, you not only received this new father, but you also received new brothers and sisters. And those people are the church. It's the church. That's your new, you're born again into a brand new family. And we need to think really concretely about the church. Um, it's easy to think, oh yeah, I love Christians generally. You know, I love, you know, all Christians everywhere. There is a sense that church means all Christians of all times and all places. But we need to think very concretely about the church. This is about loving the brothers and sisters in this room. Because it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I love Christians in general without loving them specifically. It's like somebody saying that they love marriage, but they don't commit to a particular person to love, a particular sinner. When you say that you're called to love believers, you're called to love a particular group of sinners, and they're right here in this room, okay? So whatever church you're a part of, that, those are the ones that you're to love. It's this particular group of brothers and sisters. And so if you ask, how can I know if I'm actually growing in holiness? Peter says that's simple. Look around and see how much you love the brothers and sisters in this room. It's that practical. It's that simple. And do you see how important that is? Because I could say, love Christians, love Christians, love other believers. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I say, do you love the people in this room? What evidence is there of your love of people in this room? And you guys do. You guys, for the most part, you guys are like really great in this area. Like it says in Thessalonians, you're, you have no need to be, for me to teach you about this because you're taught of God. But then he says, do so more and more. We could always have a need for growing in this. But that is the measure of holiness. It's how much do I love the actual brothers and sisters in my actual church? Because, guys, God desires a visible people to display his wisdom and power in the world. He desires a visible people. He always has. In the Old Testament, he had Israel. In the New Testament, he has all these churches throughout the world. He wants a visible people. For us, because we have the internet and all these things, we think, well, I could get teaching online and I could have, you know, the music from, you know, from Spotify and I could do all these different things and I could just hang out with my friends. But the thing is, guys, is that God desires a visible people to display his beauty and power and wisdom. He wants it, okay? So it's not like about, like, well, I can get my needs met all these other ways. It's like he wants a visible people. And this might challenge your view of the church because, you know, especially in our valley, people have different views of the church. Some people think of the church as a theater. What do I mean by theater? 
They think of church as a place that you come and watch and spectate and have a worship experience. That's thinking of the church as a theater. I know you've never thought that way, and you don't know anybody that thinks that way, I'm sure. But thinking of the church as a theater, it's a place where I come to spectate and watch and have a worship experience. If you think of the church as a theater, then you're a spiritual spectator. You've come to receive from up front. And the staff in such a church are paid to provide you a worship experience. Okay? That's seeing church as a theater. Another way you could see churches is a marketplace, which is a place, and I'm not talking about health, wealth, prosperity. I'm not talking about any of that. A good, solid, doctrinal church could be a marketplace-type church. What do we mean by that? Marketplace churches, you come there to support financially and receive or consume services. You're a spiritual customer. And so you come, and they're staffed, and those staff are paid to do ministry. Did you guys realize that staff are not to do ministry? You're to do ministry. Staff are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Did you guys realize that? That's the way it works. And that's what's happening here. That's what we think. There's a lot of things happening here, but one of the things that happens in preaching is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And so there's those different ways that people think, marketplace or a theater. But the Bible talks about the church as a family, which is a very different thing than a theater or a marketplace, right? So if you think of the church as a family, then it's a community of brothers and sisters and that you come to participate in a family, and to use your gifts, and to love and serve one another. And this is a super helpful grid to think about. Am I thinking about the church as a theater, as a marketplace, or as a family? It's super helpful because one of the things it'll do is it'll make sure that we don't, as a church, pander to cultural expectations. We don't pander to cultural expectations of being a theater, or, or being a, a marketplace, a place for you to receive spiritual services from professionals, right? Um, that's not the way to think about the church. It helps us not to pander that, because if someone's looking for the church as a theater or marketplace, they won't last long here, because bottom line is, is that we're not that slick or professional, okay? And um, a worship team and everybody do an excellent job. You guys are very gifted people, but there isn't that certain extra layer of slickness, that you might find in a theater or in a marketplace, right? Because we actually have intentionally set this up not to please consumers and spectators, but to push you into being a family, okay? So we'll actually, and Chad's really good at this, we'll actually like push you guys to pray together during service. If you're thinking of yourself as a theater or marketplace, you do not do that. The, the religious customers do not like being told to pray together with strangers, right? With the people sitting next to them. And so sometimes Chad will be like, you know, I think we should all just pray together. And, and, and before, I used to be like, oh, he's gone rogue. You know, he's doing it again. You know, it made me super nervous. But the more I saw what he was doing, what he's doing, he's pushing us to be a family. You know? Yeah, he never talked to me about it. Just did it. You know? He's gone rogue. And you guys are very introverted. We're like, oh, no. Make him stop doing that. Right? We're intentionally set up in such a way to push you to be a family. And so, and we're not going to do anything to try to keep a consumer or a spectator. And it's not because we don't like them. We do like them. But it's not what we're called to be. We're called to be a family, which is a very different thing. And if you work really hard to be a theater or a marketplace, you can't also be a family. There's some things that just don't work that way. If you want to have people, a community that love and serve each other and use their gifts for the whole body, you can't, like, staff that. You can't say, well, you know, we paid people to do the ministry. It's like, no, we haven't. You're going to do the ministry, right? It's a family, okay? So, um, and it helps us also to see how important this command is. Look at verse 22. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because with the first two, with a theater or marketplace, most of you would have very little to contribute to that, right? You, you'd pay and you'd show up. Those would be the main things that you could do. 
Um, because really, leaders in that kind of environment can do the whole thing without you, right? But guys, the third one, a family, that can't be done without you. You can't have a spiritual family without everybody participating and using their gifts. And so this command is super important to love one another earnestly. Because the thing is, is in the third model, the biblical model, you are the church, right? You are the family. You are what this is. And so um, this command really serves us to do that well. And I think a lot of you guys have really already owned that. And you can see it in the way that you come to church. I mean, I see some of you guys, you come, you come welcoming people. You know, you don't ignore the person next to you because you wouldn't do that at your house. You know, somebody comes in and they sit on your sofa and you're just like, You wouldn't do that, right? And you don't do that here because you see this as a family. So you want to get to know your your sisters and your brothers, and so you reach out to them. You want to get to know them. You're eager to know them. You're eager to look for ways to use your gifts to love and serve people around you. You guys realize that each of you has been given by God at least one supernatural gift. You're like, supernatural gift? Yes, all the gifts are supernatural. (laughs) They're all supernatural because they're all empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's, you know, Things like encouragement and help and things like that that don't seem supernatural are supernatural. Some of you guys have gifting and like uh, prayer for healing and and prophecy and all kinds of other things that are more obviously supernatural, right? But you guys have all been given a supernatural gift. Even if it doesn't seem supernatural, it is. And so you come and you look to meet needs, which is exactly the opposite of consumerism. Consumerism comes in and goes like, what services could I get here and get out of here, right? Whereas I see many of you coming here with the idea of loving and serving the people that are here. You see it as family. And it changes what you do while you're here. I love that we have an extra hour. So like we try to get done at 11. Now you're going to be watching the clock. We try to get done at 11. And then we have a whole hour afterwards. And it's so cool because it's a great time for people to use their gifts. And people do. And I think maybe, I don't know like how much you do in the foyer. I'm always in here, which is weird. But uh, I could go out there and see. I'm sure it's happening out there as well. But people are praying together. People are like sharing their burdens. People are using their gifts. I mean, I see people praying for healing and wisdom and help and sharing scripture and encouraging each other. It's so cool to see that many of you guys are super proactive and strategic about that time. You know you've got a good hour to use your gifts, and you already have the body here, and so you're going for it, which is super good. It shows that you see it as a family. It shows that you see it as a family, what you're doing throughout the week, because if the church is a family and not a theater or a marketplace, then you have a vested interest in the people in this body throughout the week, and I see that in you guys. It's awesome. You see each other as brothers and sisters. You see each other as a part of each other's discipleship, right? What's discipleship? Discipleship is learning to do all the things Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit. And we're all in a process of discipleship, right? And we all need all kinds of different help in that. And so I know that you guys are often, you know, confessing your temptations and confessing your sin to each other and seeking accountability. And whether that's a meeting personally or through text message or a phone call, you know, and you're seeking accountability and you're challenging each other and submitting to each other, which is super cool, where you, you say, hey, brother or sister, like, I've seen this and this is what the scriptures say. And you're willing to submit to the scriptures and submit to one another. It's awesome. It shows that you know that you're a family. And I see you guys you sharing your possessions big time. I know that like medical bills have been paid by other people, uh, cars have been fixed, all kinds of stuff has been done for each other. You're sharing your possessions, just like in Acts 2, which is super cool. People go like, oh, you know, that, those were the days. You could do that now. 
There's no reason you can share your possessions. You can share yourself like that. You guys are sharing your homes. I think of like the Cahies for, for Kenny and Deborah. You guys in the afternoon at 2 o'clock, they've got a study in their house and they're sharing their home. Um, and they're, they're doing all the function of the church there, digging into the Word and praying, and they take communion there too. It would be great for you guys to, to join up with that. Or you think about Ishmael and Christina's place uh, on Sunday nights with the young marrieds, and they're hanging out and doing that, or Chad and Melissa's on Wednesdays, or Lee and Megan's house is being used on Thursdays for the women's study. Lee isn't for that, but he takes care of the kids during that, obviously. Um, Tim and Vanessa, when they have prayer and worship night, they're using their house. Josh and Renee are using their house for whenever we do baptisms, which is a really cool time to get together and, and get to know each other better. But it's really cool, and then countless ways you guys do this, where you're sharing your homes together. It's awesome. You know, do that more and more. Um, share your burdens together, you know. And I, I see this happening a lot where people like, you know, they're sick or they're, you know, suffering in some way or they're tempted. They text a friend, call a friend. I've seen you guys, groups of you, like, come over to someone's house and pray for them because they're concerned about their, you know, their medical situation or whatever. It's like, hey, we're going to come on over, you know. Uh, it's been great. Um, the, the men on Sundays, on Saturdays, they're getting together talking about work and encouraging each other in their work. It's bearing one of those burdens. I love how in 1 Corinthians it talks about when one hurts, we all hurt. When one suffers, we all suffer. And I see that in here. It's a family. It's just so cool. And all the time, too, we got to forgive one another, right? Because there's no doing this without like forgiving each other and bearing with one another and be, learning how to be patient with one another. Um, guys, there are obstacles to this, right? There are obstacles to this. We've already encountered the obstacles, right? It's not like we're like, really? You know, no, there are obvious obstacles. There's a cultural obstacle. There's the cultural obstacle of, remember, the, one of the first weeks we talked about the different ways the culture wants to disciple you, and it wants to disciple you towards consumerism. And that's not just buying things. That's, that's an attitude of, like, what's in this for me, right? But, but Jesus disciples us in servanthood. And so there's that sense of, you know, you think about, like, being the church in the way you just described, Eric, if you aren't already doing it, you're thinking, like, ah, I don't think I have time for that. Or, or why should I bother if I've already kind of got what I need? Okay, when you say, why should I bother if I've already got what I need, that is, by definition, consumerism. And we all float in it. I feel it too, guys. Like, I feel like, hey, I'm good. I don't really need this Bible study. I don't really need this this week, you know? Feeling pretty good this week, you know? I don't really need it. I could skip it. And it's like, well, like, that's consumeristic, right? We're a family. We gather. Um, and we can easily slip into that theater or marketplace attitude. Um, our temperament gets in the way, right? We have, for whatever reason... Many, many, many introverted people here, and I'm one of them, and that's probably the problem, right? I probably have brought you guys somehow, like, introvert preacher, perfect, you know? I don't want to talk to anybody either, you know? Um, but guys, it's, it's not natural for me to do any of this. Tasha knows. I'm perfectly happy by myself with my hoodie up and my earbuds in and a book. I could stay that way for weeks. Weeks. You're like, would you be lonely? Nope. Weeks. Why would I be lonely? Um, but guys, us introverts are not exempt from the command to love one another earnestly. And what we'll find, guys, is we'll find, one of the cool things about introverts is you get to know them. There's actually, you know, I'm not talking about myself, but usually a lot of depth there, right? So we could get these introverts connected. Like, there is a depth of ministry that would occur there. And us introverts, we feel better, actually, when we do this, when we do God's commands, even though it's not in our nature. We feel that when we're loving one another earnestly, it does feed us. Another obstacle is what? Sin. Sin's a huge obstacle to this. 
don't know how many of you guys have been in like seven different churches in the last 10 years, but that was probably because a lot of sin. Maybe not yours, maybe others. Peter talks about it here. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He talks about loving one another fervently at the top, and then at the bottom he gives the examples of failures to love, right? Do you see them? He says, put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, right? These are, these are the sin obstacles. When we live together as a family, we stretch our love and exposes our sin. It stretches us and exposes our sin. In fact, that Greek word, look at verse 22 where it says, love one another earnestly. That word earnestly actually means to stretch to its limits. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like your love? Okay, parents, you ever feel that way? You ever feel stretched to your limits? Right? Loving one another earnestly, that Greek word means to stretch to its limits, guys. Your true love for these people in this room right here, guys, will be stretched. It's supposed to be. Because a lot of times we like, you know, you're like, oh man, like these people are sinners. And this is supposed to be a church. <laughs> right? Don't we do that? We go like, in the church, sinning against me. This is, what kind of church is this? I need to go find another church. It's like, why would we think that, you know? He says that your love's going to be stretched. It's supposed to be stretched. Okay? People are, and I'm not going to do it intentionally, but I will sin against you. And, and, and it's good. It's actually good. It gives you an opportunity for your love to be stretched. This is not a problem. This is not a crisis. This is normal, okay? And what will be stretched? If you love these people earnestly, and you guys have already experienced it because you're doing it, your time will be stretched. You'll be stretched in your comfort. Anybody stretched by the, in their comfort? Anybody have a really difficult meeting with somebody in the church? You've got to talk about some hard things, and you wake up in the morning, and you're like, oh, what am I doing today? And then you're like, oh, no. Right? You guys had that? Like, it'll stretch your comfort. You've never had that? You have too. You have all kinds of difficult encounters. Uh, stretch your comfort. It'll stretch your finances. I mean, if we're really going to share with one another and we're going to meet each other's burdens, it'll stretch us financially. It'll stretch our patience. It'll stretch our ability to forgive. He says earnestly. It means to stretch, stretching your love. And those sins in 1 Peter 2.1 are what happens when that love snaps. Sometimes you snap. Sometimes that love got stretched so far, it snapped. And what happens when it snaps? You see those sins. You see malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander. Those are things that when it happens. And so what happens when people experience that? They usually go like, well, you know, I need to find another church. To find a church where there's no sinners. Or maybe you give up on the church. It's amazing. I think somewhere near a third of the people that started coming to this church were not going to a church before or just kind of going to church more as a marketplace or theater type thing because of past hurts. No pressure, guys. <laughs> this is their last try. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, but it's something where, you know, burned by church. People talk about that. One of the things that we could do that I think would be really good is let's try not to burn anybody, whatever that is. But, um, but people go to another church or they give up on church entirely or they look for a relationship with the church that's not as personal, right? More of a theater relationship with the church. Not likely to get hurt. Guys, being a theater or a marketplace is easy, how hard is it to craft a service that won't offend you or ask too much of you? That's easy. How hard is it to staff a church with people that will provide you all the spiritual services you want with great customer service? It's easy. How hard is it to get a bunch of people together that don't have that much in common, have them live together as a family using their gifts to love and serve one another? That's impossible, okay? That's supernatural, and so that's what God wants. See how he is? 
That's what he wants. He wants the supernatural one. He wants the one where, you know, it's impossible human, in a human way. God wants that supernatural thing because he wants a visible, loving church family that displays his power and wisdom and beauty in the world. And that's his main strategy. Do you guys realize that? Our love for one another is his main strategy to reach our area. There's something like 400,000 people not going to church in our valley. These people are like, you know, when we started our church, they're like, why do we need another church? And I'm like, so there's like a half a million people around here. None of them go to church. Like, it'd be a good idea to start more. Because they think like, oh, well, you know, there are seats. If everybody decided to go to church all of a sudden, there'd be nowhere for them, <laughs> right? And so there's these people. Now, we're not called to reach all 400,000. Don't worry about that. But there's a slice of them, and the way that he has for us to reach them is through our love for one another. Jesus said this. John 13, 34, he said this. He said that, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also must love one another. And then listen to this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So it turns out that the way that Jesus wants us to be easily identified as real disciples of Jesus is our love for each other. Now, we should love the world, and, and yesterday was a good example of that, and going out and loving people that aren't believers. But it turns out that Jesus has this design that we would love each other in a community so much that that would be a clear evidence to them that we're really Jesus' disciples. Jesus also said that's the way they'll know the gospel's true. Check this out. John 17, uh, 23, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this, I and them and you and me, that we may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. What's he saying there? That the way that they will know that Jesus is truly the Messiah sent from God is our love for the people in this room. Isn't that interesting? That's not what you would think, right? You would think it's you, you go out and you do all these deeds of love for people out there. You wouldn't think that somehow loving the people in this room would have some missional evangelism effect, but Jesus said that's exactly the way it'll happen. And if we neglect that, we neglect the whole thing. That's his main evangelism strategy, is that you would love the people in this room. People are not going to be won over mostly by well-produced services or impressive clergy. You guys realize that in 2018, people are really over that, by the way, right? We could send out slick mailers to show that we're cool and we have really, like, funny, you know, come and check this out and all that. People don't respond to that. You know what they do respond to? They respond to their neighbors, loving them. Um, inviting them. And when they see the community of the church living as a real spiritual family, it's attractive to them. That's what Jesus said would work. And that shows for them the plausibility of the gospel. That's what Jesus says. And so how do we strengthen this? How do we strengthen our love for each other so that it can be like really stretchy and not snap? And he says how this can happen in verse 23. What's the first word there in verse 23? You guys see it? Since, right? In mine, it's since. So what is since? Since is a word that connects the two verses, right? So there's this command, love one another fervently, since, and then below it, he's got whatever we need to take in to strengthen our love for each other, okay? So we're going to find out how do we love each other in a stretchy way that won't snap. And he says this, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So there's this really interesting thing that we need to be able to, we need to savor the fact that we've been born again by an imperishable seed and be given an imperishable life. So this undying seed has given us an undying life. And it turns out that when we savor that, when we meditate on that, our love becomes more stretchy for each other. Isn't that interesting? I wouldn't have thought that was the case. That's what he says here. He says, since you have been born again of an imperishable seed, like if we can get that in our minds, really savor that, then I can love you in a way that can be stretched. Isn't that cool? It's really cool. And it makes sense, guys, because one of the main obstacles to loving each other the way I've described 
is self-protection. We all feel that. It's self-protection. We worry that if we were to sacrificially love the people in this room and just fully give our lives to them, that there wouldn't be anything left for us in the end. Don't we feel that way? We feel a scarcity. We feel like, you know, well, I've only got so much. And I, if I share it with you, if I give my life fully to these people, there won't be anything for me at the end. But guys, what Peter's saying here is that if you believe you have this eternal life, then there is no scarcity, right? If you believe you have an imperishable life, you will freely give away this perishable life that you have. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that you need to believe that you have an imperishable life so you'll give away your perishable life. And so we're going to look at that real quick. We want to look at our, our imperishable life. But first thing I want to look at, and this might seem dark to some of you, is I want to look at the perishable life. Because he makes a distinction here. We have all received a perishable life. And this is very important, and I think in our culture it's very taboo to talk about. But we are all perishing. Okay? We are all dying. From the moment we were born, we're dying. Look at uh, verse 24. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Guys, through the ordinary process of human procreation, you were born by a perishable seed, a dying seed, and you are dying. Now, we weren't originally made to die, of course. I mean, physical death was a result of the fall. Genesis 3. We wanted to live independent from God. It's called sin. We wanted to throw off his rules. We wanted to be our own God. The serpent comes in and talks to Adam and Eve and says, if you disobey, you will not surely die. What's he saying? You're too important to die. Look at you. You're going to be like God, right? And then what's the punishment that comes after? Punishment is death. And that punishment of death for rebellion was the perfect punishment. Because, guys, our death makes it abundantly clear. We are not God, right? It reminds us, and that's why it's so painful to even think about, is we have this sense of like, I'm too important to die. I'm too important for this world. I'm too powerful or whatever. And death tells us, guys, that we are not too important to die, that we're creatures and we die like creatures, that we're not God. It humbles our self-exaltation. And so you can see how that, that punishment was perfect for the fall because it tells us you will die and that you are not God. And ever since the fall into sin, all human beings have been born with a perishable life. We've been born to die. And so Peter uses this image in Isaiah 40. He says, all flesh is like grass and all the glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. And um, we know what this is like. We live in an incredibly dry place. How, many, how long had it been since it rained? Like before Friday. I mean, like 10 years or something. I mean, it's like insane how dry this place is, right? And then all of a sudden, this heavy rain comes. It was awesome, right? We were like... We were like way too excited, weren't we? There's thunder and lightning. We're like, it's water. And people are posting pictures of it. Look, water, you know. It was so awesome. And we know what will happen. Soon grass is going to grow. And then wildflowers. One of the cool things about living in a dry place, you get these cool wildflowers. A couple years ago, you remember, we had the super bloom. And people were like out on Lake Street in Elsinore coming from like L.A. to take pictures of the flowers. It was bizarre. But guys, we're, we know that it's not staying. You know, we, we don't expect it to stay. They're wildflowers. They're going to be gone, right? We're very realistic. The grass withers, the flower falls. But strangely, we're completely unrealistic about our own physical bodies, right? Because our culture actually encourages this. We don't think of ourselves as grass that withers and flower that falls off. And if we talk about death, something we will all actually do, we seem morbid, right? And so we act like death is something that happens to other people, right? That death is exotic, 
right? That it is, um, you know, we act like we're going to live forever. But guys, meditating on our perishable life is actually really, really important. It is important for you to spend some time, I would think every week, meditating on the fact that you will die. There's a Christian tradition, Memento More, which is you will die. Uh, There's a book that I think is awesome on this. It just came out recently called Remember Death, Surprising Path to Living Hope. And um, that's what Peter's asking us to do here is to meditate on the fact that our bodies will wither like grass. And that, guys, knowing and accepting this is something that will help us not be excessively fearful about being sick and aging and dying. I mean, I'm a person that, like, I tend to be somewhat of a hypochondriac, you know. I feel a bump on my forehead. I'm like, that's a tumor. It's like, well, you don't feel them on the outside, you know. Um, things like that. My wife knows this. She's, she's a nurse, and I'm always like, you should be providing me medical services. And she's like, I'm retired. So <laughs> she won't do it. But, um, but, you know, a lot of times I worry, you know, am I getting sick? I'm going to die, you know, things like that. You know what death says? Death says, yeah, you will, you know, that this is a reality. And if we, if we don't accept it, we're going to live in fear of something we can't stop. And if we do accept it, it's really interesting. Once we accept the fact that we will die, it frees us to love people with the short life we have. It really does. You guys know the story of John Patton? So John Patton's desire was to take, in the 1800s, his desire was to take the gospel to the New Hebrides. So this is in the southern Pacific, these islands. And he brings this idea to some church leadership. And he says, hey, I want to go as a missionary to this place. And the uh, problem with this place is they're cannibals. Okay? And so he's telling all these people. And this one guy, uh, Mr. Dixon, who was one of the leadership in the church, he said, he, he exploded. He said, the cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals, he says. And John Patton said this back to him. He said, it, John, uh, Mr. Dixon was an older guy, and he said this to him. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, and there you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrected body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Yeah. So there's a guy that has been freed from the fear of death in such a way that he's completely liberated to love people. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. He talks about in verse 24, he says that we, we, we were dying like grass. And then he says in verse 24, he says also, in its glory is like the flower of the grass that falls. Guys, all the glory we get in this world falls off like a flower, like wildflowers. You know, we think we're building something, you know, when we first, as, we, as we're growing up and stuff like that, we think we're building something, but really all the glory of our life, all those things will eventually fade. And it turns out that knowing and accepting this is something that will help us not to live for possessions and public approval instead of loving one another. You know, because all of our possessions are going to be lost. I'm, I know I'm fun, Okay. All of our possessions are going to be lost. Ecclesiastes 2.21 says this, A person who toils with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also in vanity and a great evil. Okay, that's the writer of Ecclesiastes saying, like, we don't get to keep anything. Isn't that, isn't that amazing to think about? Have you guys ever been to an estate sale? Have you ever, like, picked through an estate sale? Have you ever thought, like, this is the collection of possessions of some person, Right? That, guys, is the best-case scenario for my possessions, is that someone would think enough of them to have an estate sale and pick over them. People that don't know me don't know why I collected these things and have no interest in them. Most likely, most of my stuff would be thrown away. 
right? It's crazy, huh? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the fact that someone else that doesn't know you is going to live in your house? We, we got new houses. Like three years ago, we bought a, a new house over here. And I never thought about this before because there wasn't somebody living there before. But someday, somebody will live in this house that doesn't even know me. They'll live in this house and they'll have no idea of who I am. You guys, that house I worked so hard to pay off, and I haven't paid it off, but I'm working hard to pay it off, um, won't be mine. It'll be somebody else's. Guys, we don't get to keep any of the possessions that we, that we have amassed. And this should make us very generous. If we think about loving one another fervently, part of that is sharing our possessions and giving our things to one another. And we can't keep them. And the more we realize we can't keep them, the more we're going to give them away. What did Job say? He said, naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked I'll return. It's like we can't keep any of this stuff. And the crazy thing is that we spend so much time fighting with other people and stressed about accumulating things, we can't keep anyway. It's a weird game we play, isn't it? It's helpful to see this. Um, the glory of our public opinion will fall off. You know, we do a lot to impress other people, have people think well of us. Ecclesiastes 2.16 says, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance of them. They will be forgotten. Right? We will be forgotten. We will not be remembered. How many of you guys know the names of your great-grandparents? All of them. You do. Okay, you guys are rare. How many other? That wasn't that long ago. You know, this isn't very many people. I know one of mine. I know one of mine because he was a college professor, wrote books, and went on African safaris and shot all kinds of animals that now are horribly endangered. Okay, so you remember stuff like that, you know? You grow up in a house where there's an elephant footstool, a real elephant footstool, and so you remember the guy. You left a mark. Most of us are not leaving elephant footstools for our great-grandchildren and will not be remembered, right? It's crazy, right? When I first came as a vet to this valley, there was a, a vet that everybody was talking about. He had, he had died suddenly a couple years before I came. Everybody loved this guy. They were always talking about him. They said two things about him. Dude was wonderful, and he was huge. They said the same things about him, like, oh, he's such a nice guy. He was gigantic, you know? And they talked about him like crazy. He's best vet, and, you know, he's always there for me and all that. I haven't heard a word about him in the last 10 years. He's been forgotten. We'll be forgotten, right? Isn't this fun? <laughs> Guys, let's not live for things that perish, that death will take away from us. Let's not live for those things. They're gone. They're grass. They're flowers. They're gone, right? Let's not live for possessions. You can't keep them. Seriously, can't keep them. Let's not live for public opinion. No one will care in 50 years, right? What should we live for? We should live for these things that are eternal. We should invest in the imperishable things, the imperishable life we have, the things death can't steal. Because if you're a Christian, you've not just been born once by a dying seed to a dying life. You've been born by an imperishable seed to an imperishable life. Look at verse 23. I had to set that stage for you to enjoy this part, just so you know. Verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Isn't that awesome? If you're a Christian, you've not just been born once, you've been born twice. And you've been born by this undying seed to an undying life. What's the seed? Verse 23 says it's the word of God. Verse 24 says it's the word of the Lord. Verse 25 says that it's the good news that was preached to you. This imperishable seed that came into you and sprouted a new eternal life is the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ that is an imperishable seed. It's amazing, guys. The gospel is this. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, listen to this, this will mean more to you now, should not perish, but have eternal life. That that whole thing I described right there, 
about all those things we're going to lose, doesn't matter because we have eternal life in Jesus. And we have that because Jesus came to set right all our wrongs. Jesus came to remove the sin that brought the curse of death. Jesus came into this world to, guys, love us earnestly. Remember what that word means? Stretch to its limits. Jesus Christ came in the world to love us in a way that was stretched to the limits. You guys remember how he stretched the limits? You guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember him like down on the ground and his love being stretched out to its limits? You remember how he, he was on the ground in agony, praying, it says, earnestly, with sweat that was like great drops of blood falling, and he cried out earnestly, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. His love was being stretched to the limits for you. And then do you remember that next day, how his love was stretched to the limits on the cross? Those executioners, when they went to nail those nails into his wrists, they didn't wrestle his hand from him. He put his hand out. He put his hand out on that beam, and they took that nail, and they drove it in. And then, you know, the amazing thing is, is when he stretched out his love on the other side and offered his other wrist for you. His love was stretched to the limits. And when his love was stretched to the limits for you, for your sin, he didn't snap. His love did not snap. Our love snaps. His love did not snap for you. Isn't that amazing? How does that hit you? On the cross, Jesus Christ paid for all our sins so that we could have eternal life. Jesus died to defeat death for us. All those things I was talking about that death steals from us, we get again through Jesus. Now, he is today, guys, if you're not a Christian, he is today stretching out his love again to you. He's stretching out his love to you, offering you full forgiveness and eternal life. That the curse of death could be something that doesn't have a sting to you anymore. That's what you get through Jesus. If you'll believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. And guys, that message has the power to give new life. That message itself has power. It's an imperishable seed to grow an imperishable life in somebody that takes it in. And guys, seeds are kind of amazing things. Describes it as a seed. Seeds are amazing things because um, they look dead, don't they? Look at a seed. They come in a pack all dry. How long do seeds last? kind of inevitable, you know, forever, right? They just kind of sit around. They seem like they're imperishable already, right? They found a seed in the, um, <coughs> in Herod's palace. It was 2,000 years old. It was a Judean uh, date palm, and they planted it and grew. 2,000-year-old seed. The gospel, guys, though, is an even more imperishable seed. It's a seed that if you give it to somebody and they receive it just as something dead and dry and they don't respond to it in the beginning, it can later grow up into eternal life in them. You guys ever have, give somebody the gospel? I'm sure you have like this. And you, and you tell them the gospel and you're like, this is like the most important thing to me. Here you go. And, the, and they receive it as like, it's like a seed, dead seed. And they look at it and they're like, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And you're like, this is the eternal seed of life. Like, this is, this is eternal life. And they're like, oh, I don't know about this. I don't think I want it. It looks dead. You know, it just looks dead to them. But then what happens? It can lay dormant in their hearts. It can lay dormant in their hearts for months or years or even decades. And then the Holy Spirit can water it all of a sudden, and they can come to believe. You guys have seen this. You guys have probably seen this in your own life. If people had shared the gospel with you a bunch of times, and you took it in as just something dead, and then it had this life of its own. Years ago, I went to this biblical counseling conference, 
And uh, we all went out to lunch, the attendees, we went out to lunch, and, and one of the guys who's real outgoing, he's like, let's share our testimonies. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so we're sharing testimonies and stuff. I wish I would have gone before him because um, his testimony was that he at one time was a psychotherapist and a comedian, both. So day job, psychotherapist, evening job, comedian, owned some comedy clubs, was kind of a successful guy, but he didn't really feel like he was helping people at all in either profession, okay? He didn't really feel like he was helping people. And a friend of his had shared the gospel with him, and he just thought, eh, what do I want with that? You know, I've got this life of my own. And, um, and years later, what happened is he started, he was kind of a real introspective guy. He started to become crippled with fear and guilt, and he th- started to think like that he had done a bunch of things that he hadn't done, and I don't know if some of you guys are like this, where you get in your head that, you know, maybe I offended that person and it'll kind of spin and pretty soon you got this whole story in your mind. Well, this happened to this guy. He became more and more crippled by guilt and fear and paranoia. This is in the 90s, so he thought he was the Unabomber. He's like, maybe I was the Unabomber. You know, he started to get this thought and it kind of spin and in his mind. And then he thought, like, maybe I was the one that killed Nicole Simpson. I mean, he had these ideas. He had several things. And he got to the point, obviously, where he was committed to a mental hospital. And there they had him all drugged up on, on Haldol, and he's drooling, and he's shuffling. And then the crazy thing is that one day there, no one else had visited him, he remembered the gospel, all drugged up. This is why I said, like, I wish I would have given my testimony before him. So he's all drugged up, and, he's, and he remembers the gospel, guys. And the Holy Spirit had so watered it, all of a sudden, with no other outside input, he believed the gospel, and he was released shortly after in totally sound mind. Isn't that incredible? The gospel is a powerful seed, guys. Spread it. Give it. You don't know what's going to happen with it. It is a powerful seed that can give eternal life. If somebody believes in it, they will have an imperishable life. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. Take a look at this. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So this is about when Jesus returns. This is about how our life, how death will not steal our lives away because we have an imperishable life. He says, at the last trumpet, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised, what? Imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable life will put on the imperishable and this mortal life, immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We talked about the sting, but in Christ, none of that sting stings us. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Guys, everything that death tries to steal, Jesus will replace at the resurrection 10,000-fold. That's the good news of it. Do you guys see how believing that is going to empower you to love one another? I mean, think about, think about the sins that are in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Take malice. Malice is, is usually our response to a brother or sister sinning against us, and we won't forgive them. We won't forgive them, so we become malicious, right? Guys, your perishable life reminds you that whatever they took from you, you couldn't keep anyway. Your grass, your perishing, anything they took, you couldn't keep anything. We're losing it all. We fight over so many things, guys, that death is going to take away anyway. But our imperishable life reminds us that Jesus himself will repay and restore anything that it costs you to love these people. Anything that it costs you to love people in this room, he will repay at the resurrection. 
Or take these other sins of deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slatter. What, what are they about? They're about gaining glory. The reason why we do any of those things is to gain glory, aren't they? Our perishable life, guys, reminds us that all the glory we seek for ourselves in this life won't matter anyway. It's a flower that falls off. So what does it matter to me if I have, you know, glory in this life? Guys, playing the glory game, the glory-seeking game, is lo- everybody loses. Everybody loses it in the end. There's no point in dabbling in deceit and hypocrisy to feel superior to other people. As Spurgeon said, six feet of dirt make all men equal, right? The glory gets lost in the end. Your imperishable life, though, reminds you that you're destined for glory. You know, it says that? It says it talks about the resurrection as our glorification, Did you realize that? Our glorification. That we will stand in his presence and be like him. And that we will worship him without sin, without all the things that affect our lives now, with no sin and death and and, and darkness and sickness and sorrow and all that will be removed. The real glory that we have is something that we have not achieved, but Jesus achieved for us. And so the charge here is, guys, keep going. Keep loving one another. Don't stab. Let your love be stretched the way Jesus is Love was stretched for you. And he says this, since you've been bored of an imperishable seed to an imperishable life. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just ask that you would teach us to love you and teach us to love each other. Lord, not abstract love, but love for the actual people in this room that we would see day after day, week after week, that our intensity of love for each other in our church would grow and deepen Father, we thank you for giving us a family, that you didn't just have us be born again and adopt us and then have us figure out life by ourselves, but you band us together in families, local churches for this. We thank you for that. Guys, help us to love one another so that the world will know that we are your disciples and that the gospel is true. Lord, only you can do this. Only you can give us the boldness to share this seed and to love these people. We thank you that we already see you doing it. Thank you for the the love that's here. Thank you for the family that's here. We thank you that we don't have to go it alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.